0: time to run. You can get out now. Morning. No, Danny is not sick. He's taking today off. Sometimes pastors have to do that. So... I'm still not used to having this podium up here. Happy Reformation Day. What? What? Reformation Day? How many of y'all knew it was Reformation Day? Before the picture went up. Today marks the anniversary of what we recognize as the spark that lit the Protestant Reformation. 504 years ago, Martin Luther nailed the document in Latin to the church door at the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. On that document, he had written his famous 95 Theses, uh, otherwise titled, The Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. So that's what we celebrate today. It's not just Halloween. At that point in church history... Y'all didn't know you were getting a history lesson, did you? Well, you are. At that point in church history, there were, really weren't denominations like we have today. Um, the church, at least the European, West Asian, North African church, were pretty solidly consolidated under the umbrella of the Catholic church. Not the Roman Catholic church, the Catholic church. That means universal And during the 1,400 years from the writing of Scripture to Luther's document, you might be surprised to note that the church had made mistakes. I know, gasp, right? How can the church make mistakes? If we're guided by the words of Scripture, how can we make mistakes? Because we're people and we sin, right? And Luther had seen some stuff in the church that he was unhappy with. Now, a little bit of history about Martin Luther. He suffered from severe depression, anxiety. Uh, he had a lot of guilt in his life. Some of the stories of Luther and his young ministry are sad but ironically funny to read. Um, he was so racked by guilt, and, and because of the the setup of the church, he would spend his hours in prayer and penance because of the sins he had committed. And when he would go to confess his sins, he would go into the confessional and he would tell the priest, brother, I coveted so-and-so's potatoes at lunch. And the priest in the confessional, okay, go do whatever and and you'll be absolved, you're fine. And then 15 minutes later, Luther shows up again. And the priest is like, what? What? well, I forgot I coveted his carrots too. Okay, do six more of them, whatever. He was just racked with this guilt and he could never, ever get away from this guilt until he read that passage that Dave read earlier today. And so as he progressed in his life, he saw one of the errors that the church had made, which was the selling of indulgences. Now, I know you've all heard of that, right? Raise your hand. You've heard of the the controversy surrounding indulgences, yes? Does anybody know what that controversy was? I know what we think it was. Okay? It was originally not designed to be a get-out-of-hell-free card. Okay? The, The Catholic doctrine of purgatory was in full swing, right, which was the idea that if a person died with some sin on their account, they had to spend an indefinite period of time in purgatory being purged from that sin before they could go to heaven. Well, the thought process was if you were uh, sincere enough in giving to the church, right, you could give to the church and that would help get your friends and relatives out of purgatory faster. If your faith was sincere in that purchase. What really turned into was a pyramid scheme for fundraising, to the point where the, uh, the the priest who was selling indulgences had the slogan that every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. I could see that on a commercial on TV. And so Luther wrote this disputation and he hung it up on the church door to get his brothers and the clergy to open up a discussion about this error. This idea that we could teach people that all they had to do was drop a penny in the plate, so to speak, and it would get their loved ones into heaven because it's not very far from, well, if I can if I can pay 20 bucks to get Uncle Sid into heaven, if I dump 100, then I'm good, right? That's the way it went. And Luther had a problem with this. I have a problem with this. In the 500 years since then... The church has had everything all figured out, right? No? No. No, there have been battles within the church, some of them physical to the point of warfare, like literal combat. Some, even more dangerous, they have been spiritual battles. There have been church schisms. Uh, A schism is a severe split. Okay, it's one thing when you split with the church because you don't like the person who's preaching and so you don't come back. There's another when you split over an item of doctrine. There have been these battles and these just terrible divisions within the church. And of course, Baptist historians will tell you, well, we don't come out of the Protestant Reformation. We don't. Baptists do not come out of the Protestant Reformation. But we do have a lot of commonality with those who were of the Protestant faith. And we've been shaped and influenced by its impact on the world over the last 500 years. One of the ways that we are aligned with them is spiritually. Now, I don't typically use slides, and I definitely don't use the clicker, so bear with me as I try to figure out how this stupid thing works. There we go. One of the things that we agree with them on is that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Right? We believe that Scripture alone is the foundation for faith and practice in the Christian life. This is called the five solas of the Reformation. In Latin, that would be sola scriptura, sola... Christos, sola gratia, sola fide, and sola deo gloria. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. Period. That's one way we are in line with the Protestant Reformation. The one I want to focus on today is the purpose that we share with the Protestant denominations, with everybody who claims the name of Christ. And it was that the, the, we're starting with the passage that was the key to Luther's work. And that would be Romans 117 that Dave read earlier. For in it, the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And in case you're wondering, that's in quotes, that's from Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. What does that mean? What does it mean for the righteous to live by faith? It's easy to say... Does, does the word live there just mean that, that we're going to have eternal life because of our faith? Kind of reads that way, doesn't it? I think that connotation does exist. By faith, we do attain eternal life. We just said salvation is by faith alone. But I think there's more to this verse than just eternal life. I think there's a practical application of the here and the now, the way we live our lives out today. The passage that I think gives us a really good look at living by faith is probably nowhere near anything that you've ever thought of in relation to Reformation Day. And that is uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse verses 18 through 20. So if you would, I'm going to ask you all to flip your Bibles open if you have them. If you're a digital native, go ahead and pull your Bible application out and tap your way over to Matthew chapter 28. Start with verse 18. Once you get there, let me know by standing up. I don't want you to multitask. I don't want you to try to stand up and flip pages at the same time. Find the scripture first, then stand up. Hear what the Lord, the Word of the Lord says matthew twenty eight eighteen and Jesus came to them and said to them, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me' Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go ahead and have a seat. So what does it mean to live... By faith. Is there a simple formula for how our faith should manifest itself in our lives? Is there a simple process by which we know that we are living by faith and as the contrast in other places in Scripture says, not by sight? Is it a list of do's and do nots that a good Christian should follow? I know I've heard people say that. I've heard people say that living by faith is a list of things like planting seeds of faith with your giving, shunning medical treatment or prevention, because by His stripes we are healed. Because if you rely on a doctor, then you don't have faith. I have faith that the doctor can be used by God just like I can be. I mean, if the, if, if scripture tells us that God can use a donkey to preach his message, then I believe that a doctor can be used to bring God's healing too. Putting out a fleece about a decision to make sure that you're staying in God's will. God, if you really want me to marry this woman, then, then, then make, make it rain from those thunderclouds right there. In the next hour. Love this one. Pray for whatever your heart desires because God wants to bless us. Sure. There are people who will tell you that this is what living by faith means. This is what it means to live by faith. Is you just... You throw caution to the wind. You plant seeds of faith by just putting all of your money in the plate. Don't worry about paying your rent, your mortgage, your electric bill, buying groceries. You put it all in the plate, and God's going to just dump more money on you. Maybe I haven't found that in Scripture yet. He does tell us that we're supposed to feed our families and 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 you know pay our debts and that sort of thing. Personally, I think. Living by faith is different. I think it's simple. I think it's a lot simpler than we make it out to be. Boy, we in the church, we love to complicate things. We love to make things more difficult than they have to be. Practically, living by faith means that we believe God, not believe in God. Remember what James says? It's good that you believe in God. Even the demons do that and shudder. Not believing in God, by believing God, take Him at His word. He does what He promises He will do. Believe Him. And if you believe Him, obey Him. There you have living by faith. No, the sermon's not done yet. A couple weeks ago, Danny shared the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he prefaced the parable by talking about the the scribe who came to Jesus and asked, how do I receive eternal life? You remember this? Right? The scribe, the, the expert in the law, the guy who knew Scripture backwards, forwards, upside down, left, right, every letter of The Old Testament, he knew it. How do I attain eternal life? He knew the words of the prophet Habakkuk that I just read out of Romans. The righteous will live by faith. He knew the answer. So what he was asking was, how do I get fire insurance? How do I make sure I don't wind up going to hell? how do I make sure that I am living by faith? And Jesus asked him the question, well, what does the law say? What does the law of Moses say? And this guy got it right. He knocked it out of the park on the first try. He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He got it right. When when Jesus quoted that, When the Pharisees came to him to trap him, to trick him into saying that one commandment was more important than the others, right? Jesus said that the whole law and prophets are tied up in these. Love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. We call this the great commandment. listed right here. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The sum total of scripture in Jesus' day, the Old Testament, is wrapped up in love God with all you've got and love your neighbor just like you love yourself. And you can't tell me you don't love yourself. I'm looking around the room and I am not seeing a whole lot of people who look like they don't love themselves. Most of us are extremely well fed, myself included. We have clothing. We come to a sanctuary to worship where there is HVAC, air conditioning, heat. We have lights. We have a sound system. If we drove here, we drove here in nice cars. Love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Jesus told the scribe that he answered correctly. And then the scribe went the one step too far that led Jesus to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember the scribe's question? Who is my neighbor? Let me translate that into today's English. Who can I get away without loving? That's the question he was asking. He just said that the law says, love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. He asked Jesus, who do I have to count as my neighbor? Who can I not love? Now, this scribe wasn't a Christian, so it shouldn't surprise us that he answered in a way that showed he was looking for a loophole, right? A God-fearing Christian would never do something like that, right? Well, would you consider Peter to be a Christian? Probably I know I've told you all, Peter is my absolute favorite of the apostles. Peter's the best because I can identify with Peter. Peter spends more time with his foot in his mouth than anybody else in Scripture. Matthew chapter 18. Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. At what point can I tell that jerk that I'm done with him? At what point can I stop loving my neighbor because he sinned against me? He was looking for an out. He was looking for an excuse. He was looking for God's nod of approval on his sin. This guy was looking for Jesus to sign off on who he could be unloving towards. But wait, there's more bad news. The habit of making excuses instead of being obedient can be traced all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, and they hid. When God asked them why they hid, Adam said, We hid because we were naked. And I can't help but say that with a southern accent. We were naked. When God asked who had told them they were naked and asked if they had eaten from the tree that he had forbade, Adam responded, The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then God said to the woman, what is this thing that you have done? And the woman said, that serpent over there, he deceived me. First sin, first excuse. Now, most of the time when we read Adam's response, that woman, but that's not who he was blaming. That woman, you gave me, God, I wouldn't have been in this boat if you hadn't made her. This is your fault. I wonder if there was ever a point in Adam's later life where he thought back on that and went, whoa, that was a bad choice. Eve made an excuse. It was... The serpent who deceived me, it wasn't my fault. At no point did they step away and say, Yes, Lord, we were disobedient. They never once fessed up to... Now, did God have to ask them if they ate from the fruit? No. Just like the the phrase, when when they hear God in their hiding, God says, Adam, where are you? Is it because God doesn't know where Adam is? No. No. The idea is, Adam, what have you done? Where is our fellowship? Why are you afraid to meet me? Consider your heart, Adam. What did you do? It passed on to their children. What was Cain's excuse when God asked him in Genesis chapter 4, Where's your brother? Now my turn to watch him. didn't know cain was a teenager, did you Abram he lied about Sarah's identity and he brought judgment on Abimelech. Abimelech had taken Sarah now fortunately for him, he hadn't done anything with her, but God's judgment had fallen on him, so he called he called Abram into his Into his city, he says, Abram, what did you do? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? What was his answer? I was scared. Because she's gorgeous and you would have killed me and taken her anyways. Now, at what point did uh, did Abram sleep on the couch? I'm glad you think I'm gorgeous, but really? (laughs) And then the rest of his excuse. Besides that, she really is my sister. You know, because, you know, family ties and stuff. You know, Isaac did the same thing. He did the exact same thing with Rebecca. Moses, as Alan talked about with the kids, speaking to God in the Midianite Desert, God commanded him to go lead Israel out of Egypt. But God, I can't speak. But God, they won't believe me. But God who do I say sent to, sent me to him And I can't help but think that whole sign with the staff and the snake I would have stood there for hours I would I would it's a snake it's a stick it's a snake it's a stick I would have done that Excuses run in our blood If you have ever raised children, you know this to be true. We are quick with an excuse as to why we didn't or cannot do something or why we did something that we shouldn't have done. Right? So if it's so natural, if it's so widespread, if it's so common, then God has to understand, right? Well, what did God call it when Adam and Eve disobeyed? What about when uh, Cain disposed of his brother? Uh, what about Abraham and Isaac's deception? Moses' excuses? Aaron's. Aaron's is my favorite. I, I absolutely love Aaron's excuse. Do you remember Aaron's excuse? The, the Israelites are at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments carved by God's hand. And he comes down and the Israelite people are dancing around a golden calf. And Moses goes to Aaron and he says, "What is what did you do?" And Aaron turns into a four-year-old. I took all the gold from the people and threw it in the fire and a calf popped out. That's what he said. That's in scripture. <laughs> I threw the gold into the fire and a calf popped out. I lived on a farm. That's not where calves pop out of. What did God call all of those things? He called them sin. They are disobedience founded in a lack of belief. They are the exact... Opposite of faith. When God told Anna and Eve, don't eat from that tree, I am firmly convinced from all of my studies, from all the stuff that I have read and learned, I really do not know that there was a specific tree in the garden that was a specific species of tree. It probably wasn't an apple. Okay, so just throw that Renaissance picture out of your mind. Right? Right? I think God was standing in front of Adam and Eve and said, Just don't eat from that tree. And he just pointed at one. Why was it called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because when they disobeyed it, they knew the difference between good and evil. Prior to that point, they had only known good obedience to God. As soon as they disobeyed, they knew evil. I could be wrong. Why did God tell them not to eat from that tree? Because he wanted them to have faith. I've given you every other tree in the garden. I've given you all of the food that you could possibly want to have. I'm putting that one off limits for your good. Believe me. Remember what I said living by faith is? Believing God and obeying him. Believing and obeying. If I go back to Matthew twenty eight, eighteen uh, and and verse twenty, there are two things that our excuses show our disbelief. There are two points, two things that Jesus says, these prove that our excuses are indicators of disbelief. Verse 18, the very first thing that Jesus said in this passage, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have the authority to give you this directive. Verse 20, the last thing he says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Between those two passages, those two phrases, Jesus tells the righteous how to live by faith. What does he tell us to do? Go make disciples of all people, teaching them all I've commanded you. It's really simple. I didn't say it was easy. I said it's simple. It's right there. Make disciples, teach them what I've taught you. But, but God, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'll invite them to the church, the pastor can teach them. I'm too busy. They smell or they talk funny. I don't approve of their lifestyle. What if they ridicule or hurt me? I don't know how. I don't know the Bible well enough. I don't know what to say. What if I mess it up? Or my favorite. That message was only for the disciples. You're right, it was only for the disciples, that we're supposed to be disciples. We have plenty of excuses not to be obedient. Sounds a lot like those other folks that we were talking about, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like Adam and Eve, excuses for not being obedient. Well, God, you gave me that woman and she led me astray. Well, God, you made the serpent and he led me astray. Or it's, I don't know where Abel went. It's not my turn to watch him. He's, it's not my responsibility. You're God. Shouldn't you know where he is? I don't know how to speak, God. I have a speech impediment. The Egyptians will kill me. The Israelites won't believe me. After 400 years of slavery, the Israelites would have believed anybody. I'm afraid, I'm unequipped, somebody else is responsible. But what it really says is, I'm not living by faith. Look, look at those. I'm not living by faith, that's what that all says. Verse 18 again. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Do we really believe Jesus? Do we believe that he has all authority? Because if he does, that means he is perfectly within his rights to tell us to go make disciples. Why do we think we have any excuse to be disobedient? Any excuse? You know, there have been a lot of studies that have been done to figure out why less than 10% of church members ever share their faith. Now think about that for a second. I know you've heard it from up here before, because I've said it before. Less than 10%. This morning, I counted roughly 50 people in here. So that means, on average, if we were an average church, and I know we're well above average, right? we were an average church that means that there are five people in here who have ever shared their faith five why is that number so small the Barna group has done studies churches have done individual studies All of the different teaching series that are out there all start off with studies on why. One of the biggest answers is fear. Fear. Look at the slide up there on the wall. They smell funny. They talk funny. I don't approve of their lifestyle. What if they ridicule or hurt me? I don't know how to do it. I don't know the Bible well enough. I don't know what to say. What if I mess it up? That's all fear speaking. That's all being afraid. What do we fear? Do we fear the judgment of people? Or do we fear the judgment of God? Just a question. Now I know y'all are going to tell me, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I know that I'm not going to be rejected just because of my disobedience. In this one area, I live the rest of my life by faith. I'm okay, okay, yeah, you're you're okay. Got it. No problem. You got kids? You got grandkids? Cousins, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, co workers, friends, anybody in this world that you care about? What about them facing God's judgment? Are you more afraid of man's judgment than you are of them facing God's judgment? God's judgment terrifies me. The other answer that is often given is because we feel inadequately prepared. If I go back to this slide right here, the answers. I don't have the gift of evangelism. The pastor can teach them. I'm too busy. I don't know how. I don't know the Bible. I don't know what to say. Those are all statements about feeling unequipped. Okay, now from the the pastoral perspective, I'm offended that you don't feel well-equipped. Oh, I am, because Ephesians chapter 4 says that the purpose that the pastor-teacher was given to the church, this position exists to equip the saints for ministry. So if you tell me you're not equipped, then Danny and I are not doing our jobs. That hurts. But more so, if you don't feel you're equipped... We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the complete canon of Scripture. We have resources upon resources upon resources on how to share the gospel, on how to make disciples, on how to be a better disciple yourself. We have discipleship classes. We have small group studies on Scripture. We do stuff online. We do stuff in person. If you have a smartphone, you can access so many resources in the palm of your hand instead of playing solitaire or words with friends. And at this point in time, we still have a constitutionally guaranteed Freedom to share those resources with other people. I don't care what your political persuasion is. Right now, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights still holds. I do not fear the Biloxi Police Department coming in and arresting me for preaching Christ. How can anybody say they're unequipped? The only way you can say that you're unequipped is the equivalent of being a construction worker who goes to the yard before they go out to the job site and they deliberately put their toolbox and all their safety gear somewhere else and then get in the truck and drive off to the job site. And when the boss says, okay, get to work, I can't, I'm unequipped. Are they unequipped because they didn't have the equipment? No, they're unequipped because they deliberately and consciously chose to not be equipped. What does that sound like? Sounds like sin to me. Verses 19 and 20. Jesus said all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you that's the how make disciples now I know I said we complicate this I said it's really simple right we complicate it well I don't how do I make disciples well let's see step number 1 you must be a disciple Does anybody know what the definition of a disciple is? A disciple is somebody who deliberately and consciously chooses to place themselves under the authority and teaching of somebody else. I don't like to use the word student because Evan is a student. And there is no part of being a student that he did deliberately and consciously to place himself under the authority of the teachers in his school. Likewise for Gabe and Kirsten and James, and I'll even go back so far as to when I was in school. didn't happen even in college it didn't happen and you sign up for a class you don't know who the professor is going to be until you get the until you get the notice of who the professor is and by then you're lucky if you can switch to a different class we have to be disciples which means we have to place ourselves under Jesus's authority right and Jesus's teaching how do we place ourselves under Jesus's teaching Yeah. Ta-da! The sum total of Jesus' teaching in one handy, easy to carry, leather, pleather, paper, cardboard, whatever you want, bound edition that you can take with you. And if this is too bulky and too hard to handle, then pull out your phone and go to www.biblegateway.com. Or Bible.org, or one of a million other websites. So, if we're supposed to make disciples, we have to be disciples. If we're reading Jesus' teaching, if we are placing ourselves under his authority, that means we are seeking to be obedient to his teaching, right? If we're seeking to be obedient, that means we're living by faith. And then we can make disciples by showing them the discipleship in our lives, by sharing with them the things that Jesus is teaching us. Like the second part of this, teaching them all that I've commanded you. How do you teach people what Jesus commanded? It's almost like you got to know what Jesus commanded, Right? <laughs> I have spent 17 years down here on the coast. And in those 17 years, I have taught a lot of people. And I cannot teach on a topic that I do not know. Can't do it. I have to at least be familiar with it. So how am I going to make disciples and teach them what Jesus taught if I never Familiarize myself with what Jesus taught. If the only time I am getting told what Jesus taught is when I'm here on Sunday morning to hear a 45 minute sermon, how can that be the only way I'm getting equipped to be obedient? Do you remember Luther's trigger verse? The righteous shall live by faith. If we can agree on terms that the term righteous refers to those who are in Christ, that would be Christians. I'll make this simple. It's early. Ten minutes before the buffet is open. You can hang with me a little bit longer. If we can agree that the righteous in that in Romans one seventeen, if we can agree that righteous means Christians, and that the commandment to love God with all of our being and love our neighbor as we love ourselves is the summary of the law and the prophets or the Old Testament and the commission to make disciples of all people and teach them all that Jesus taught, which is the New Testament, summarizes the life of faith, then we have a choice we've got to make. I can't make this any more simple or any more practical for you. I cannot lay this out any more clearly today than this. 500 years ago... A German monk by the name of Luther decided it was time for the church to face up to its problems. He was tired of having to make excuses for a teaching that let people think that they were going to be eternally okay because they had bought an indulgence. While in reality, their faith and trust was in that indulgence and not in the work of Jesus Christ. In our world, today, 2021, 504 years later, we we live in a world where the majority of people place their faith in the government. And I would love to say that that majority doesn't include people in the church, but boy, let me tell you. They place their faith in the government, they place their faith in themselves. They place their faith in the universe, whatever that means. And they even place their faith, I hate this, they place their faith in the church. Are we content to see our families and our friends and our neighbors and even our vague associates slide into hell on the assumption that they're okay are we going to follow in the footsteps of adam And Eve and Cain and Abram and Moses and everybody else in human history? Are we going to keep making excuses for why we are not doing what we are clearly commanded to do? Or are we going to start making disciples in obedience? We have a choice. When we walk out that door, we have a choice. We have a choice to either believe God, believe His Son. When Jesus says that He has all authority, and that he is with us, or we can continue to act out of fear, out of pride, out of sin, we'll call it what it is, and we can choose to keep making excuses.